What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hey everyone, it's Major Garrett, and welcome to our new podcast. Did you know we have a new feed completely separate from the takeout as well? Please just search Debriefing the Briefing. Click subscribe, and then if you can, and we'd really love this, drop us a rating and or a review. Pretty soon, you'll have to be subscribed to the new feed if you want to hear new episodes of Debriefing the Briefing. Thank you, and now let's start the show. What we are doing is working, and therefore we need to continue to do it. I know I sound like a broken record. That's good. I want to sound like a broken record. Let's just keep doing it. These are not numbers. These are lives. And our our heartfelt condolences during this heartbreaking week go out to every American family that's lost a loved one. I'm not sure a lot of people will ever be the same. But I think our country, from an economic standpoint, will end up being stronger than ever. We have tremendous stimulus. We have tremendous stimulus. From CBS Audio, this is Debriefing the Briefing. Here's CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent Major Garrett. Hello from Washington and welcome to Debriefing the Briefing, a summary of the highlights of the daily White House Coronavirus Task Force briefing, the April 9th briefing, one hour, four minutes, the 36th of its kind. President Trump participated for 21 minutes. Here are some of the key takeaways. The president said the country will be much lower than the level of 100,000 projected deaths. He said the country was at the top of the hill and would be going downward. He also said it was a very positive development that British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has been moved out of intensive care. And when referring to glitches in the applications and loans for the Paycheck Protection Program administered by the Small Business Administration, the president said banks would be releasing those loan funds, quote, soon. The president was also asked if a goal of 750,000 tests per week in the country was attainable. And here's what the president said. Speaking of testing, some experts, including Scott Gottlieb, have talked about 750,000 tests per week being needed before the economy is open. Can you address that? Do you agree with those numbers? If not, how many tests per week yeah. do you think we should have before the economy yeah, is open? I don't like sir. using the word needed because I don't think it's needed, but I think we're going to try and hit a number like that. That's a very high number, but we're going to be trying to hit it. Uh, and we probably might be able to do that. His medical advisors later came to the podium to clarify that that number of tests was already being achieved and exceeded at least this week and would be in future weeks. The president also said that the Treasury Department would begin sending out direct payments to Americans who qualify as part of the economic lifeline legislation by the end of next week. Lastly, he also announced, the Vice President Mike Pence rather announced, that teams of military medical corps personnel stationed currently at the Javits Convention Center in New York and on the U.S. Navy ship Comfort will be leaving those because they're not needed there and will be relieving hospital workers and frontline medical personnel in New York City and New Jersey. The vice president regarded that as a positive development. The availability of COVID-19 testing was once again a prominent subject during 
the April 9th briefing. Here's an exchange between CNN's White House correspondent, Jim Acosta, and the president. President, how could the administration discuss the possibility of reopening the country when the administration does not have an adequate nationwide testing system for this virus? Don't you need a nationwide testing no. system for the virus before you reopen? No, the we country? have a great testing system. We have the best, right now, the best testing system in the world. But there are certain sections, right now. there are certain sections in the country that are in phenomenal shape already. Other sections are coming online. Other sections are going down. And we, in addition to that, are giving out millions of tests. And every day we're doing it uh, exponentially. We're picking up. And what we'll be doing in the very near future is going to certain areas of our country and do massive testing. Uh, it's not necessary, but it would be a good thing to have. On the subject of testing, I spoke to Craig Fugate, the administrator of the Federal Emergency Management Agency, for the entire eight years of President Obama's presidency. I did that for this week's new episode of my other show. You might have heard of it. It's called The Takeout. Here's what Fugate had to say about testing and the potential for a COVID-19 vaccine. Already there's conversation. The president talks about it with some regularity. We got to open back up. We got to get going. The country wasn't meant to be this way. And there's a sense of, well, okay, the 30 days to slow the spread, end of April, May 1, it all goes back. It doesn't seem realistic to me that we can go back to normal on May 1. Until we have a vaccine, the way I describe this, people, is this is like a forest fire. We may get control of it, but it's not out. And if we let down our guard, it will come screaming out again and burn even more things down. And the only way to put this fire out or put this virus out is to vaccinate enough people so it can't continue to spread. Now, what we may be able to do, particularly if we can get more testing, is to start bringing parts of the economy back where people have tested positive, they have the antibiotics, they've gotten over it, and they're well enough to go back to work. Or we can test people to make sure they're not sick and bring them back on and start bringing some things back. And I agree, we need to do that. But if we don't have testing, we're not able to manage that. The risk will be we let our guard down. People start going back to normal activities. We are not maintaining social distancing, and it flares back up again uncontrollably. Um, we saw in the Spanish pandemic, or the, the 1918 uh, flu, that the second wave was actually deadlier than the first wave. So until we have a vaccine, this will not be going back to normal. Let's play another clip from my conversation with former FEMA administrator, Craig Fugate. Tell my audience what it should look for in the next two to four weeks. And if you have in your mind, as you've gone through these exercises in real time and also tabletops, what the metrics might be to suggest we're doing the right things and making progress. Well, we'll know, we'll know it when the curves start flattening. Uh, we have seen that uh, one of the interesting things I saw, because I do some work on the West Coast, was how in San Francisco and the Valley and then up in Seattle, uh, big tech companies canceled conferences very soon after it was realized it was spreading at conferences. And then they began moving towards work from home well before there were actually any stay-at-home orders. Uh, the, the governments there, particularly the public health, then followed that up with the stay-at-home orders, closing down essential non-essential functions. And while they had earlier cases and widespread early cases, it had not reached the type of rapid increase we've seen in other parts of the country. So I think that what we got to watch for is social distancing is probably about a two to three week lag time between the time we start it before we see the numbers start to come down. But it doesn't mean it's over. It just means it's slowing down and is more manageable. 
And I think the real challenge over the next couple of weeks will be, can we establish conditions where it's safe to begin cranking up parts of the economy that have been idled? Um, but we have to be very careful that in doing that, we don't make the problem worse. Uh, I think there are several things like testing and uh, better protocols that will be needed. We may see parts of the country be able to move back to getting some things back online. In other parts of the country, we're still seeing things being impacted. Like most recently, as this has moved into rural America, a lot of the agricultural production, particularly meatpacking plants, uh, processing facilities, are now starting to be impacted as the disease has reached their workforce and they're having to close or limit their production. Describe what the summer looks like based on all the things you have looked at and tried to appraise. Are we at beaches? Is there Major League Baseball? Do we have a college football season? All things that are kind of important in Florida, but nationwide. I think we're going to have a staycation. We'll be vacationing at home. Uh, All summer. Pretty much. I think the question will be, do we have enough testing capability? You know, the thing about sports, particularly like college football, uh, they're going to put the safety of the players as the first premium. The second will be the safety of fans. So the question will be, is there enough capability in testing? Are we far enough along where maybe the teams can start practicing and maybe the teams will be able to play, but we don't have the stands full of fans. We have to televise it. Or do we get to the point where we have enough comfort that our levels are low enough in areas that we can do that? But I think what will happen is, is it starts coming down and we start moving back to uh, – not the old way, but perhaps what we should call our, our new way of dealing with this. There may be areas that will have flare-ups and we'll have to go back into extreme social distancing, shutting down and isolating, while other parts of the country will have more freedom. Uh, but again, this is all contingent upon we flatten the curve, we make it manageable, and we get a vaccine that is effective. And just getting the vaccine is only the first step. The second step is vaccinating enough people that we now have produced enough immunity where it can no longer continue to spread like it's doing right now. During the uh, Thursday briefing, Dr. Anthony Fauci of the National Institutes of Health discussed something that former administrator of the FEMA, Craig Fugate, just referred to, some areas of the country emerging more rapidly than others. And Dr. Fauci said, when it comes to the advice that the medical team and the public health officials will be giving to President Trump about when the country can reopen. He said, and I quote, there will be no one size fits all recommendation or set of guidelines that some parts of the country based on the data and based on the geographic concentration or lack of concentration of COVID-19 cases will be allowed under the guidelines to reopen more rapidly than others. One other thing that was notable in the briefing, Dr. Deborah Burks, who is uh, chief advisor as coordinator to the uh, coronavirus task force, talked about a lot of statistics about those who have been tested and what the data has revealed so far. One statistic that stood out of those who have been tested, and she emphasized that those who are being tested are ones who present with symptoms that might be related to COVID-19. 56% of them were women, 44% were men. But of the women, 16% tested positive, 23% of the men tested positive. Dr. Burke said that suggested that men are more likely to withhold the sense that they have symptoms that they should be concerned about and therefore are delaying presentation for themselves to be tested. Not exactly a firm conclusion can be drawn, she said, that men are more susceptible to COVID-19, 
But she said all Americans, if they are concerned and believe they have symptoms, should try to be tested to find out if there is a positive COVID-19 result. If you enjoyed that conversation with Craig Fugate, who, as we mentioned, was the FEMA administrator for the entire eight years of the Obama presidency, and you want to hear the entire conversation, I highly recommend that you listen and subscribe to my other podcast. That's called The Takeout. That episode will be available first thing Friday morning, meaning April 10th. And that's all for this episode of CBS Audio's Debriefing the Briefing. Until next time, I'm Major Garrett in Washington. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.